Hello, everyone, and welcome to season two of the Gills Talk podcast. I hope you all had a safe and fun holiday season, and we're going to kick off our season two with Gills Club scientist Melissa Gonzalez de Acevedo. I think having Melissa's interview right after the new year is such perfect timing. We all know that in each new year, you might be setting new goals and aspirations for yourself. And Melissa drops some really great knowledge nuggets throughout the interview that can maybe help you all obtain those goals that you have set for yourself throughout the year. We will learn in today's interview that Melissa studied the bonnethead shark, which is my favorite shark. If you've been listening for a while, you all might know that already. But did you know that the bonnethead shark is considered to be the only shark that is an omnivore? So what is an omnivore though? It is an animal that eats meat or animals and as well as plants. So we do see the bonnethead shark eat plants in our oceans, which is pretty cool that they do like to get their veggie intake (laughs) as well. But if you would like to learn more about the bonnet head shark, keep on listening and let's start our interview with Melissa Gonzalez de Acevedo. Welcome everyone to another Gills Talk podcast. Today we have Gills Club scientist Melissa Gonzalez de Acevedo. So welcome Melissa and thank you so much. Thanks Kristen. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. Well, we are very excited to have you be here. So to kick off the interview, um, can you please explain to everyone your past work and what you're currently working on right now? I actually worked on my shark research a while ago. It was while I was completing my master's degree in biology at University of North Florida, so UNF, and that was back in 2014. I then transitioned into education for middle and high school. And that was an incredibly rewarding experience. So I got to teach uh, my students a little bit of what I do. And then after that, I actually took a break just as the pandemic was starting, um, which was coupled with our firstborn coming into the world. And so that was all very exciting. And the great news is that during that time, um, I was actually able to get my research, my graduate research, um, accepted for publication into two separate journals, scientific journals. So the break wasn't too much of a break. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I am currently. So I am now, uh, we actually just closed on a house over in Merritt Island, which is by Cape Canaveral, Florida. And so I'm starting to reconnect with my network of, uh, with my science network, because I'm hoping to lean back into that field. So yeah. That's where I am. (laughs) Well, that is incredible. So first off, uh, congratulations on a baby, a house, a master's pup, a baby, a house, a master's publication. I mean, that's a lot of things to be congratulatory for. I love that you have that connection um, with your research to your students as well. Then can you just go then and go on and explain about then what is that master's project all about? actually ended up being two projects all in one. The first kind of kicked off the second, uh, but the first portion of my research of my research was published in the Journal of Fish Biology. Uh, I believe it got accepted in 2020 <laughs> and it's uh, fisheries related. So it was a collaborative effort between UNF and the Georgia and South Carolina Departments of Natural Resources, uh, as well as commercial fishermen off the coast of Cape Canaveral. And um, what we did, we set out to identify the reproductive cycle 
the periodicity and fecundity, and I'll go a little more into each of those, of the smaller species of the hammerhead sharks, which if I recall, is one of your favorites, the bonnethead yes. shark. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you recall, this is a smaller uh, shark that's found in um, the coast, off the coast of uh, the Atlantic and Gulf. And uh, it's very well fished. And so um, currently we've been managing the fisheries uh, for this species based on very limited information, mostly all coming from the Gulf Coast. And so we were looking for determinant evidence to figure out, you know, if we're doing what's right based on how these, how this species reproduces. Um, so in, in looking for the reproduction, we're trying to find out when are they, or when are they mating? How often are they reproducing? How many pups are they having on average? Um, and that just helps us understand the population better so that we know if they can self-replenish in a sustainable rate based off of what the current uh, fishing policies are. We looked at really cool things like all their sex organs and their uh, hormone levels to figure out. So those uh, sexual hormone uh, hormones that tend to regulate the reproductive cycle. So things like testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And um, uh, we found that there are a lot of similarities, but also significant differences between the populations that we were focused on versus the ones that had been mostly studied in the Gulf of Mexico. And so I feel like I've done a, a great, <laughs> a great service. Uh, so we've left some cooler questions unanswered but we were definitely able to identify that these species are copulating or they're mating on an annual cycle and that they are actually much larger. The females tend to be much larger, but are, are producing fewer pups. And mm. so, you know, what those implications may be. <laughs> yeah, so we also found that these the females contain some unfertilized eggs within their batches of brood. Uh, so we haven't noticed that to impact the brood size, but that's still something to note. So yeah, all cool stuff. And then that kind of kickstarted the second portion of my research, which involved a closer look into uh, those regulating hormones, specifically the females do something that's really cool. Um, that's actually something that happens in the animal kingdom much more often than I ever imagined. But once the females mate with the males, what they'll do is they will hang onto the sperm that's collected mm -hmm. in their little special organs called the oviducal gland. And that sperm will be released whenever they ovulate. So whenever they're ready for for that to happen, which actually doesn't happen until a few months after they've mated. And so that gives them a reproductive advantage because the males and the females can separate and allow the females to have their pups when they are more ready. That's incredible. <laughs> so many interesting things that you're learning from these studies. Let's go into, I've been like writing notes down as you've been, been talking. Um, so the first thing I have a question about with your research, you had, um, you talked about that they sent down these unfertilized eggs. So I know with different species of sharks that they send down unfertilized eggs 
So then as the juveniles are growing within the uterus, then they can eat those. Is that how bonnet heads develop? I forget which way they develop within the womb. We actually, so they are internal fertilization. The, um, the bonnet head has two uteri. Mm -hmm. And so the pups are actually very much like, like you and me are born, were born. <laughs> so they have an umbilical cord and they, okay. they do feed off of, of the vitelogenic substance. And so that allows them, that's right at the beginning. And then from there, they are, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's they, okay. They uh, receive their nutrition from the urine sac. Thank you. Um, that's why I was like, oh, I wonder how that works. I, I didn't know what the reproduction was within the bonnet head. That's a full thing I would love to do a podcast on. It's just strictly on the many ways that sharks can, um, can develop within the uterus. Um, so it's so always so fascinating. <laughs> it is. And, and that was something that I struggled with right at the beginning was um, the dissections were such a cool concept, but of course, you know, you open up your shark and you see all these little babies and you're like, oh no, I'm a shark murderer. But, <laughs> but as you get further and further into the study, you recognize that what you're doing is, is basically for the greater good. You're doing this so that you, it's, it's really just the science behind it. It's so cool. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we work with the same, almost same type of system. So up here on the, on Cape Cod, we have a spiny dogfish shark fishery. So we have a relationship with one of our local fishermen that um, they will donate some of their catch to us. And then we use it for, for dissections, for outreach and, and for education and things like that. And that's always, since they're mostly bringing in those females that um, when we will open one up, usually they're pregnant because they have such a long gestation period one they're usually at some point within the cycle when we get them and so that's always when little when, with little kids they always see the babies and they're like ah but then it's also their favorite part too because it's more easy to manage than a large like adult shark they can at least hold the baby in their hand and they don't feel as nervous about it but that's um, so cool. <laughs> I totally understand where you're coming from with that but then my next one you also said you had some unanswered questions as well. So what were some of those unanswered questions that came up throughout your research? You know, um, there are just, you just want to know it all. <laughs> and Valid. so this is just such a small portion and so, so many moving pieces. But really when, uh, when it comes to the species, you know, you're, you think, well, a bonnet head, a bonnet head. And so you think a bonnet head, would be the same and would exhibit the same reproductive patterns all throughout, but just across, you know, the state. So we have the Gulf of Mexico on one side of Florida, and then the east side has the Atlantic, and there's already these differences. And they may be slight, they may be uh, differences by a month or two, by a bit of a size, a little bit of a size, or on average, the number of pups that they're having, but that can make a big difference. And so a lot of these questions all boil down to, is it, what, what is causing these differences? So is it an environmental factor? Um, I know that we've had a lot of uh, studies out of the uh, Gulf Coast, especially since we've had the oil spills mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, pollutant toxin, toxins 
based research. And so it's just stuff like that. You know, there's always something more to know, something more to learn. Um, with the second portion of my research, looking, I mean, we just dove more into the molecular world <laughs> where we were looking to identify what is regulating these uh, sexual hormones. Um, we saw a spike in testosterone in the females and testosterone is normally known to be the sex hormone in males mm -hmm. that drives spermatogenesis or the maturing of sperm. And so uh, seeing these spikes in testosterone in the females, um, it correlates with the time that they are actually, that those organs, the oviducal glands, are holding on to that sperm. And so, you know, it leads you to, to wonder if the sperm is directly uh, interacting with this hormone in a, in a way where that's what's keeping them alive or, you know, so lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's, that, but that's great though. I mean, more, that's what science is, you know, you figure out one thing, but then you answer that one question, which leads you to five more than which leads you to more and more. And that's how, you know, everyone's able to learn more, just not even about the bonnet head, but with other species of sharks as well. So I learned that chickens also do have sperm storage and there's all sorts of different animals that exhibit that kind of storage. Oh my gosh. I never do that. Look at that. We're learning. See, we're learning all around, around today. It's not just sharks on, on the podcast. Um, but I always, always find that interesting with the, um, with sharks holding sperm. Um, so our, here at our education facility, we have a tank of chain dogfish and we just have a male and a female and they were in our tank for about a week and the female laid two eggs. And our staff scientist, Megan, um, she's always said, she's like, I just want to do a DNA analysis to see if it actually came from him. <laughs> she's like, there's no way in that week. And then she, she kept laying more. At one point we had about um, eight babies. She's like, I just want to do a DNA analysis and, and see if they're all from him. She's like, I don't think they are. <laughs> but, so it's cool. Yeah, it's very cool um, to be able, because then now that we've had them here for over a year, she hasn't laid an egg in almost eight months. So now we're like, hmm, maybe she was holding sperm from an, an, another male. And now like they just haven't re reproduced yet or they don't like like each other enough. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's all quite interesting. But going into, um, I know you said that you were a teacher as well. And I want to get into that that connection that then you're able then to connect that with your students, with your, your research. Um, so if it's either by, if you're just explaining to them what you're doing, um, I know sometimes that like Dr. Christine Stump, she's able sometimes to get her youth out there as well. So I'd love to know how, you know, you're able to connect the two together. Oh, absolutely. I mean, so I never expected to go into the teaching world <laughs> and um, I happened upon it and, and it was really thanks to the grad program that I was in. I really, it helped me gain the confidence to break down large amounts of information and, you know, share it with the public. And uh, I did, you know, a teaching, a teacher, what is it called? The TA, <laughs> teaching yes. aid um, while I was there. And so I, uh, I've taught at both high schools and a middle school, and I've had just an excellent experience with my students, particularly because me, so Personally, I didn't grow up um, in the world of fisheries or in the world of fishing. 
I am originally from South Florida, from Miami, uh, actually a smaller town called Hialeah. I'm from Hialeah, Florida. And uh, I just, even though I was so close to the beach, I never went and I wasn't, uh, you know, I grew up in a uh, single parent household and I didn't think that science was something that was attainable for me. I'd see that, you know, on TV and, and think, all right, well, you know, that's never going to be my route. And falling into this amazing world of science and feeling successful, I could walk into a classroom and say, hey, you know, kids, I can relate. I can relate to you feeling like the world is so small, but really there's just such a much bigger, much greater world out there and we all belong in it. And so I'll start every uh, first day of teaching with by introducing myself and starting up a PowerPoint just about a little bit about me. And um, I show them some fun, cool pictures of sharks because that will get anyone interested in a science class. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just get their, I get their questions flowing. And it's really nice to be able to, to show them that I am your average Joe. You know, I grew up in a, in a town where none of this was in front of me. Um, I didn't know any scientists growing up and now I can consider myself and call myself a scientist. And this is the type of work that I have done that I've worked hard to attain. And this is how it's made an impact for the better in the world. And so it, it really does mean something and it, it helps with creating that kind of relationship with your students where you know, they, they can see past their own little world. So it's been very cool. It sounds like it. And I mean, and what a great way for, you know, students to come into your classroom and be able to see the work that you've done and then be able just to be inspired if it is to go into the shark world or if it's just the ocean world or even something else, you know, it's just like, it, like you said, it's expanding their world to be able then to see what those possibilities are outside for them. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so you did talk about earlier that, um, you know, you never expected to go into teaching and it wasn't something that you expected when you um, were starting out this field. Um, but is there anything else that you can think of that when you were starting this or even now that you're like, huh, I didn't, I didn't foresee that along the way. And just about everything, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's so funny because so I am the first level of education. So I'm the first master's mm -hmm. um, in science or, or just master's uh, education level uh, in my family. And so that in itself was a lot of pressure uh, and not coming from my family because my family was always very supportive and they, they would have never wanted me to tackle, you know, too much or, or mm -hmm. anything that I didn't feel ready for. But it really is just this daunting world where there's a lot of things that you have to navigate, starting with filling out financial aid. Have you, do you remember those days? Yeah. <laughs> it's not fun. <laughs> pamphlets and pamphlets of notes given to you by a high school advisor, and you still don't know what you're signing your life to. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I've been very honored. I definitely struggled with a few things that were just cultural differences. Mm -hmm. uh, so I did my, both my undergraduate and my graduate degree up in Jacksonville, and again, University of North Florida, so UNF. Mm -hmm. So it's not even, it's kind of like, 
what we were talking about the bonnet heads from the gulf of mexico and the ones on the east <laughs> it's not that far away so miami and jacksonville are just five six hours distance from one another but just that distance was enough to be a very big uh cultural difference mm -hmm. and so um you know i i was someone who just expressed myself differently than others. And so I was a very private person. I definitely suffered from the imposter syndrome <laughs> that I know uh, you had a few scientists mention in your earlier episodes. Yes. And you can be your own worst obstacle. And that's terrible because like I said, every, everyone belongs. And so me being so private and dealing with stress in a very different way than my peers dealt with stress. I always looked like I was, you know, calm and in control. I always looked like I wasn't, you know, I didn't care as much. <laughs> I, my, I have a type A personality, but wrapped up in a type B. <laughs> so, you know, the, the challenges for me were the fact that I felt like I needed to catch up on very basic things like learning how to study or, you know, seeing the plan, you know, planned out ahead, just very basic things that I felt other people already had control of. And then, of course, on the other side, I ran into some very surprising biases from other people and their perspectives, assumptions that just came with, you know, the way that I react or reacted or behaved that just made things even more challenging. <laughs> and so, you know, by weird assumptions, things like I was pinned into the, the thought that I was uh, filling a quota for the graduate school because mm -hmm. I'm female and I'm brown, <laughs> you know, and it's stuff that you see in a movie or you read in a book and you're like, no, people don't, don't think this way, but it does, it happens. And so, um, you know, I, I had to kind of battle through a lot of, a lot of that stuff without actually, you know, feeding into it. And, and like I mentioned, you know, filling out FAFSA, I, I'm very grateful to apply for a scholarship for being a minority that allowed me to pay through some of my schooling. Some of these challenges came from the fact that I was coming into the lab at different hours uh, because I had other side jobs that I was doing in order to pay for school. Mm -hmm. And these weren't things that I communicated openly. And so I had, I did a lot of learning, but everything, you know, everything one step at a time. And I fell into shark research because I thought it sounded like a really cool class to do during summer. <laughs> and I fell in love with it. And I, you know, along with the challenges also was very honored with some incredibly encouraging individuals. My advisor turned out to be, you know, absolutely wonderful and encouraging. Um, I had a group of professors and a group of peers as well that uh, really helped me through those tough times and helped guide me. And I made some amazing friends along the way, particularly in the AES, so the American Elasma Breakfast Society mm -hmm. meetings. That gave me the opportunity to travel and to meet a lot of amazing professionals in this field. I became very good friends with uh, Rachel Scherer, which I know yes. you interviewed earlier. 
mm-hmm. and uh, Heather Marshall, which I know that you're going to be interviewing. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you meet other people that really do lift you up and, and make you realize that you bring your own flair and, you know, everyone can do it. <laughs> you just gotta, gotta find your niche. And so it took me a little longer than it might have other people, but I've had a great experience. Like you said, you know, you didn't even know you wanted to do shark research till you took that summer class. And that's one thing that if I'm in a school program and teachers will usually say like, what advice do you have? Or, you know, for someone that's looking in to get into this field, if it's sharks or anything. And I always say, figure out what you want to do, but figure out what you don't want to do. And you're not going to know that until you sign up and do it. You know, if that's a volunteering somewhere for you, you know, you took that class um, was for me, I helped out count plankton and water samples in college. And I went, Oh no, that is the, this is not <laughs> for me. Um, so you never know. And so, and you know, like without you taking that class, you know, you wouldn't be here today, wouldn't be able to interview you. So it's always, you know, you just got to take that leap and that jump, but then also going back to, um, you talking about those, those stereotypes set in. And then unfortunately, like you said, it is something that still is there in academia. And we hope, you know, by interviewing, you know, wonderful people like you and getting the word out there, but then groups like Miss as well, um, to be able then, you know, to break those stereotypes that we still see in science and as well, just as in academia as a whole. So one other way for one way, thank you again for just coming on here for that as well. So I also would love to know, I know you were working with bonnet heads. Um, so was that the species that you started with in this class? And you were like, I want to learn more about them. Or was there an other species that you worked with? And then kind of then round out that question, then what would be your next species of shark you would love to do a study on? If it's the bonnet head continuing it more or, or something. <laughs> So I will say they are a very uh, charismatic species. They're very cute. I <laughs> definitely got a tattoo of them. <laughs> they're so, they're great. Um, <laughs> so it's very hard to deviate from that. I, when I actually started the studies, I took the shark, it was like a shark summer course, and it was basically an introductory course to help obtain samples for other ongoing projects. And after that, I had one more semester, I believe, before I graduated with my undergraduate. And uh, I asked uh, my advisor at the time if I could join his lab and do whatever he needed me to do. I'd do, you know, whatever labor. <laughs> and um, they put me on a really cool toxicology project. And it was uh, processing some samples from the Gulf of Mexico, uh, looking at um, basically bioaccumulation of those toxins in different types of fish, including sharks. And so um, my perspective was, I want in, I want a foot in the door, it doesn't matter what it is. (laughs) And uh, funny you mentioned plankton, because I recently just went out over to, I don't remember the the exact area, but it's over in Cape Canaveral area. And we did a trip uh, kayaking. um, And it was a night trip. And there's bioluminescent phytoplankton um, in the water. It was the coolest experience ever. I totally felt like Moana when she's in the water. And you have the, yes. The race. yes. So anyways, that was, you know, off topic, but, uh, it, it's just, it's been incredible. So in focusing on the bonnet head, I still had an opportunity to do some really cool, um, collaborations where I would jump in and, and was just doing sample collections or 
you know, field surveys. And I've gotten to see manta rays and sawfish and just all sorts of things. I have to say the bigger species in open waters is what I would, you know, what I'm missing kind of in my bucket list. I'd love to see anything from, you know, the, the um, plankton eating filter feeder, big old shark, like the mega mouth, <laughs> just swims so cool. around with its mouth open. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think I would just feel honored and excited pretty much to be anywhere at any point with these, with these different amazing creatures. But yeah, you know, if, uh, if I had to choose, I'd be a-okay with sticking with bonnet heads. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that, I think that, 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 that's great. You know, you found, you found your niche, you found your species. And um, I mean, and there is so much still to learn about them anyway. So, I mean, why not just stick with them? <laughs> uh, but my last question for you um, to round out would be what advice then? I know we kind of talked about things already about um, your younger self and advice, but what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, uh, I think, I think it's so easy to look back and be like, I should have done this. And I, I honestly, after thinking long and hard, I feel that I wouldn't be where I am had I not gone through everything that I've gone through. But if I could speed up anything about myself, it would be to become a little more um, assertive in terms of tackling issues as soon as they arrive. So, you know, not pretending that I wasn't struggling with the imposter syndrome. And actually, you know, if there's an issue, you can be extremely respectful mm -hmm. uh, while still confronting that issue. And a lot of those assumptions and those biases that uh, were really holding me back or, or pushing me down, by the time I got my master's degree, I had already clarified and cleared the air with a lot of those individuals, mostly and simply just by taking them aside on a one-on-one -on -one and saying, hey, so this is what I've noticed and this is how you treat me and I need to understand where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're not going to be able to be friends with everybody and you're not going to be able to clear the air with everybody, but understanding the basis of their behavior and how it's affecting and, and letting them under, understand how it's affecting your behavior can really come a long way. And so it's really just the healthiest thing that you can do for yourself is just, just be honest and, and honestly lean into that support system. I had a lot of people that were very willing to be supportive and helpful. And I was trying to do things very much on my own. And, um, everybody needs a support system. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I think that is great advice to end on, you know, to stick to yourself and be true to yourself and then lean on that support that is there for you. With that, I want to say thank you so much. This has been such a great interview to be able to get to know you more um, and be able to hear all about your exciting research about my favorite shark. So very excited. So thank you so much again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.